This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Do you get the quality sleep you need? Mattress Firm will find you the right bed for your best rest with their wide selection of quality mattresses at every price. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale. Sleep at night. We told you we were going to dig into what it means to be Latino. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you right now. Mexican. Period. Full stop. Hold up. Sorry. I meant to say what it means to be Latinx. If you say it in Spanish, it's like Latin, 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 Latinx. Like, that sounds like a, a dembow group. Los Latinx. En vivo. En super canal. Los Latinx. The kid Mero prefers Latine. Because you can say it in Spanish. You know what I'm saying? I think that's all that matters. Anyway, we're talking about Latinidad with some very interesting people, including you, our listeners, because you had thoughts. First up, though, my conversation with the kid Mero of Jesus and Mero fame. I just want to I want to I place the disclaimer that I have not done any type of collegiate studies of like racial identity or anything like that. So I, I'm sure from the hip. Mero talks to me about his Dominican pride. There's Dominican flags all over the house. And how having kids with his wife, who's white, has made him think even more about race. My kids, they are black Latinos, but half of them look exactly like their mom. Can you go in a room and say, I'm black? The Kid Marrow, next week, right here. Just a heads up, y'all. This episode contains salty language, so consider yourselves forewarned. All right, on to the show. I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. I'm Gene Zembe, and this is Code Switch. From NPR. Gene, what I'm about to say is going to come as no surprise to any of us or our listeners. Okay. We've been talking a whole lot about reparations on Code Switch lately. Some people might think we are obsessed with reparations. Mm-hmm. We have. We have been talking about it a lot. I mean, I'm personally personally obsessed with getting reparations. Like, anytime the government <laughs> wants to, to bless us with that, y'all know where I am. I mean, I guess y'all literally know where I am because you're probably tapping my phone. But I have bills to pay. So, you know what I mean? Yes, and and Gene said he would treat me to dinner if he got reparations. Listen, so. <laughs> this, the sweet, delicious reparations and justice. You should have some of that, too. Last year, we talked about who exactly might qualify for reparations were they ever to become, you know, a political reality. You know, there's no question that all black people are weighted by the freight of American white supremacy. But the degree to which people are freighted by that is somewhat different. Mm-hmm. At the end of February, I talked to Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow about their podcast, The Big Payback, which is all about reparations. Here's Whitney. What I'm thinking about is solutions. And I really believe the only way towards a true reconciliation is to create a funded reparations program. And uh, white Americans have to decide if they want to rise with black Americans or fall with them. And we brought Whitney's co-host Erica Alexander back for our live show just a few weeks ago to talk even more about why she thinks reparations are necessary. They said that this was the land of the free and the home of the brave. And then they put millions of stolen, kidnapped people from Africa into chains. That is not a perfect union. And if you thought we were done bringing you reparations content, uh, nah, nah, that's not not even <laughs> close. We are not done. We are going to be following all the reparations discussions that are happening right now in Congress. Um, we're going to be keeping a close eye on the local reparations type initiatives happening across the country. And we're going to talk to some of the you know different scholars and theorists who've been trying to think through 
what reparations could look like. And today, we are handing the show over to our colleague, Kia Miyaka-Natis. She's one of the brand new hosts of NPR's Invisibilia podcast. And she's going to tell the story of a community in Vermont that tried to create a hyper-local reparations situation. Is it reparations, though? I mean, what we're about to hear doesn't sound like reparations to me. Gene, Gene, this is about letting the listeners decide for themselves. Don't tell them what to think. Yes, you are right. I'm Don't okay. listen to him. Erase bad. that. The story begins in the spring of last year. The pandemic is raging across the U.S., disproportionately killing black and brown people. So many people have lost their jobs. They're really struggling. And two good friends, Jas Wheeler and Maura Smith, are at their wits' end. Maura is black, Jazz is black and Mexican, and they are both really tired of living in a community full of white people who are, you know, down to go to racial justice protests and all that. But as Jazz and Maura see really quickly, not really compelled to do much else. All right, here's Kia. It's 11 a.m., May 27th, 2020, two days after George Floyd has been killed. Moira sat on her couch, angry and tense. I texted the people that I knew and I was like, is it okay? I'm going to like create a reparations list. Is it okay if I put your information on there? And they were like, what? They're like, do you think like it's going to work? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, we can just try and see. And they were like, okay, yeah. Jess and their wife, Lucy, they were on that text message group and they were totally down. Fuck yeah, we have time for that, you know? They were struggling just like everyone else. And in that moment, many people were grasping, looking for solutions, a direction, something. Especially white people, many of whom kept asking, what should we do? Right, and I'm doing so much, what feels like so much labor, like emotional labor. Um, so like, let's get, let's get some money. They decided to create a list. They called it Wealth Redistribution for Black People in Vermont. Of course, there's a risk in making a public list of Black people in one of the widest states in America. Moira considered the possible consequences. Hopefully, a white supremacist group doesn't get this list. But then it's like, people also need money for food and they have to pay their bills. So that's what I was thinking. I was like, I have to like push past the fear and just think about like, positive things that could happen. Jess and Moira decided to make a Facebook post to spread the word. They created a small list of the Black people they knew with their cash apps and PayPal so people could send them money directly. Included with that post was a direct call to action, Lucy's letter to white people. If you are white and trying to understand how to be, in quotes, helpful, slash engaged, supportive, not completely co-signing white supremacy in all areas of your life. One of the easiest, i.e. the bare fucking minimum, ways to support Black life, Black joy, Black safety, Black community is to give your money to Black people. Jess's wife Lucy wrote the letter. She's white. In it, she's specific about what redistributing wealth means. Lucy knows people are about to be stingy, and she's clear in how they can overcome that. Sending $50 is fine, but I mean redistribute some wealth. I usually know I'm hitting somewhere closer to it because it feels uncomfortable. It digs into or demolishes my financial comfort and stability. The impact is felt in my bank account and life. Sometimes I'm broke and the amount that does that to me is $50. Sometimes it's $500 or much beyond that. 
find that number for yourself. This listen letter was asking white Vermonters to give money directly to black Vermonters, strangers, people they didn't know and wouldn't have to explain what they were going to do with the money. Maybe they didn't even need it. I mean, it wasn't a requirement. You just had to be black and in Vermont. It felt like a long shot for sure. But they posted it anyway. And when that Facebook post went live... Shit really got popping. Black folks were signing up to join the list left and right. It was wild. Oh my gosh, like now we have 50... Like nonstop notifications. This is not a joke. This is real. This is really happening. It was just like, it was like 200, 400, 500, Like somebody deposited like $500 in my cash app. And I'm like, what? People started telling their friends. No, it's not weird. It's like, I don't know how else to say. Like, people, like, apparently, you know, want to give money. This person just texted me and told me they got $500, right? That felt so, like, gratifying in a time in which I felt pretty powerless and hopeless and depressed and, like, grieving. Every day was payday in Vermont. I mean, Black folks were getting money. But the question of who was sending it... Can you hear me okay? I can. Do you want to get started? Sure, let's give this a try. I asked reporter Abby Wendell to try to find out. She's white, and my thought was, I know Black people tend to speak more honestly to other Black people, so I was hoping the same was true for white people. My main question was, how much? Do you know how much you gave for, through through this particular wealth redistribution effort in total? Abby, you sound nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Kia, it got real awkward. So I'm a little uncomfortable. So I'm, so uh, how is this just like... How is that going to be featured in publicly? I'm sorry. Are you getting answers? Are you getting answers from other people? <laughs> What's everyone else doing? Can I look at their homework? Yeah, exactly. They wanted like <laughs> social affirmation that like this was okay to do. Um, another really interesting thing is like I have never in my life had interviews with such. Um, I think it has to do with um, long. Hmm. I'm talking really long. I'm just sorry, taking a moment to think if that's okay. Pauses. But I kept pressing because how much that question, you know, in a way, it's like the crux of Lucy's letter to white people. And the white Vermonters that I talked with, that's totally the part of Lucy's letter that struck them too. I remember this email specifically saying, you need to feel the pain of this donation. This has to impact you directly. Well, I was just like, well, fuck. So this is Jamie Lent and his wife, Allie. Jamie is a mechanical engineer. Allie's getting her PhD from the University of Vermont. And she read Lucy's letter after a colleague sent it to her and a couple of other people. When I received their email request, not request, but like urge, call to action, essentially, for reparations, I was like, oh, I can give, like, 50 bucks, no big, like, and then I read the line about, if you can give 500 and you give 50, that sucks. 
This is a number that you need to feel. Mm. So she sat there for a minute and just kind of like stewed in that feeling. And then she went over to Jamie and she read it out loud to him. And after she finished it, she just like grabbed his phone and went into his Venmo account. Um, And I said, I'm going to do this. Here it is. Press the button. Well, can you talk to me about amounts? Like, what was the first Venmo? Okay, so here we are again at that question of how much. And I'm just going to, like, let the tape play. And uh, you'll hear Jamie come in at the end of this. I just, I think the reason I'm hesitant about talking about amounts. Why are we hesitant about talking about amounts? What happens if people find out how much? I'm, like, just thinking this through. I don't know. I, I think it, Americans hate talking about money. Yeah, I hate talking about money, but but here we are anyways, and that's why you handle it. So um, we gave away, we started Venmoing, and we were Venmoing, like, by we, I mean I, uh, $1,000 to, like, multiple different random people. So that was weird. Like, here you go. Here's $1,000. Ellie did that, dropped, like, $1,000 each into the accounts of, I think, four people on the wealth redistribution list. Wow. But then, like, Jamie actually starts wondering several thousand dollars. Do I even feel that? Mm. Does that rise to the level of what Lucy's letter is asking? And so they they Mm. kind of start this tug of war with each other where, um, like, Allie and Jamie, they go on walks every morning together. Mm. Um, And they have conversations on these walks. And at this time... They start debating this question, how much? Mm. Okay, so if $1,000 doesn't impact us, does 2000 Does 20000 Does 200000 And, you know, as you do these numbers, they all feel uncomfortable. We were walking by Redstone Lofts. I, like, remember I had coffee in my hand. You're like, why couldn't we give 20000 30000 I'm like, because? <laughs> <laughs> we kept challenging each other. Could it be more? Could we get rid of more? Jamie and Allie ultimately decided to give 10% of their life savings away, but to a nonprofit for racial justice, not to the list. Now, Jamie and Allie have money, a pretty significant amount of disposable income. But I talked with several people who participated who don't. One person I talked to who works part-time contract jobs told me they were redistributing so much that in the future, they'd have trouble paying their own bills, which seems extreme. But as I talked with more and more people, I noticed this trend in how many of them were thinking about money. They had stopped thinking of it as their own and started thinking of it as a shared resource. So if they had more than they needed they should redistribute it more equally. These Vermonters were really into what Lucy's letter was saying. But for Moira, it's not that deep. What did you think when you read Lucy's letter? I was like, that's great. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Such a dry response. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. I feel like sometimes people get lost. They might get lost in Lucy's letter. Moira went on to explain that, though the letter is useful, it's not the heart of what's happening here. It's just a device, a match, but not the fire. This isn't to say it wasn't effective. It did what it was supposed to do. It got people to act. 
And as Jess points out, getting people to act, that required a fair amount of coaching. It was interesting here to read, like, the words that Lucy knew that she had to write for other white people about discomfort. Actually, like, reading this as, like, coaching other white people on how to give money and how to give generously, you know, to, specifically to Black people, you know, because that's the last group of people that white people want to give money to generously, you know? Give it to, like, the animal rescue, you know, give it to the zoo, the whatever, like the women's club in town, whatever, but give it to their church, but uh, to give generously to Black people that they do not know in their community um, is not something that they can intuitively do. For example, Jazz kept hearing from a lot of young white people. My family is wealthy, and I want to get their money to some of the people on this list, but I don't know how to because they're never going to give to, like, an individual, right? These were the white parents that needed receipts, proof of what was going to be done with the money with a side dish of tax deduction. So, Jess wrote out additional directions for using the list with an unexpected solution. If your family supports you and is rich and racist and greedy, you can say that you need cash for a car, an airline ticket, rent, groceries, etc., and give that away. This line gets me every time because it's absurd and hilarious, but I can also sense the frustration. I took it as a joke, but Jess was serious in a way. Wanting to challenge people to like just figure out ways to just get the money from their parents and like give it away because it does feel possible um, to me, at least. Of course, a lot of people didn't get it, even Black folks, many of whom replied to Jess with their criticism. You're encouraging people lying to their family. Um, You're telling people to steal. Plus the classic. We should all get jobs. Jess wrote them back. If you feel like you are not in a place of like wanting to receive money um, from white people who are seeking to like uh, redistribute their unearned wealth, uh, then you don't have to be, right? And also don't shit on people who are, who are, um, because at the end of the day, it's our, it's our money. (laughs) We deserve this money. I get what Jess meant, but I know that line seems provocative. It did provoke a lot of people. And while some wrote emails, one person responded a bit differently. A white dude from Rhode Island who sent requests for money to different Black people on the list instead of payments. One person was tricked and lost $500. Ultimately, Jazz and Lucy were able to convince the scammer to give the money back. That was just one of the problems with the list. The main problem was, surprise, surprise, inequality. Remember, white people were supposed to pay money randomly to people on the list. But instead, they often gave to the names they knew, like prominent organizers or people who spoke at the protests. Consequently, a lot of Black folks on the list ended up sharing the money they got with other people who didn't get any. In spite of all this, the list grew bigger than anything Moira and Jazz had imagined. When we come back, 
Is this guilt money? Or charity? Or something else? Black folks in Vermont have questions. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Good question. <laughs> that's a really good question. It's a great question. This is free therapy. Thank you for asking me that. God, that's such a good question. That's an interesting question. But what Fresh Air interviews are really about are the interesting answers. Listen and subscribe to Fresh Air from WHYY and NPR. There are now more than 300 Black people on the wealth redistribution list. Many of them are under 40, a lot of them queer or college students, some immigrants. And the group of people who gathered to help Jess and Moira manage it, they estimate that around $65,000 have been redistributed. It might even be more. There's no real way of knowing since the money went directly to individuals. For the Black people who did receive cash, It wasn't just as simple as name on list, money in account. Getting money from strangers, let alone white people in a time of deep racial tension, it can leave you with a lot of questions. I'm going to assume that I'm not the only person that had some of those thoughts come up of like, what will people think? That's Wayne Miller. He's in his early 30s and lives in the Upper Valley region of Vermont with his partner and two kids. The list came into his life when he had just lost his job. But still, he had his reservations. You know, people will lose respect for me, or you know, then you could bring gender dynamics in of like, oh, I guess I'm not, you know, enough of a man that I'm just taking care of my family. Wayne is just one of a couple dozen Black Vermonters who I met from the list. A lot of people were down to talk, but some were hesitant. I think part of it had to do with the list feeling like charity, even though it's not. But for Elaine Littlebug, that question of this feeling like charity, she's been there before. I've like looked people directly in the eye and asked them for money, literally just asking for money. Elena shares a home with her kid and her partner in Montpelier. But years ago, when she had first come out as trans and was living in Los Angeles, she was homeless. I think that when you're in that kind of position, your dignity isn't a question. Your dignity uh, is only what you make of it and what you can keep of it and what you can kind of like go through while hanging on to it. So she had no problem putting her name on the list, though her expectations of what would happen were low. Nobody's really going to give anything. Like I might get like 50 bucks or something like that. Finally, meet Julian Hackney. Morning. Hi, how are you? 
Julian's pretty well known in some corners of Vermont. He's in a punk band with his brothers. It's called Rough Francis. He lives in Burlington with his family. And when he heard about the list... I was actually taken aback by my own reaction to it. Because I was like... I had my own, like, hang-ups about it. and was like, whoa. Like, I don't want to, like, take money from people. But that resistance to the idea nudged Julian to think a bit more deeply about what the list was trying to do. He considered the wealth gap, why white people as a group have more money and resources than Black people. I guess I, I thought that if we're going to get to a place where it's a normal conversation that we're having and it's a continuing, you know, progression, like I wanted to be a part of it. He put his name on the list and got about $400 in total. He saved most of it. I still, I still struggle with it, but it's something that I'm, I feel it breaking down within myself. And it actually feels more like reparations than I, than I guess I expected it to. I, I felt more secure. Elena was surprised. Turns out, people gave more money than she expected. I'd like open up my cash app or or Venmo or something like that and just be like, oh my God, I I don't have to worry about like utilities this month. Uh, just like, I was just more liquid. She got nearly $1,000. And the best part? She didn't have to perform the dance of receiving charity. It wasn't one of those things where it's like I, I felt like I had to be like groveling. I am genuinely grateful. But at the same time, like, uh, you know, there was no pomp and circumstance to it at the expense of your dignity. But Wayne, the guy who was worried about gender stereotypes, he got nearly $10,000 from being on the list. Now, that's pretty rare. Most people I talked to got around two to four hundred dollars. But Wayne's well known in the community and ended up using the bulk of the money he got to start a nonprofit to mentor black youth. In some ways reminds me of um, the ending to It's a Wonderful Life when they all just show up with the money. You know, the Christmas movie where the guardian angel shows George Bailey what his town would look like without his good deeds. Just like George, Wayne was in a rough place. But his community showed up for him. And they could have just let him go to jail, right? <laughs> like, they could have just like let them haul him away. But everybody scraped whatever they had together. And they, you know, they barely had money to give themselves, but they gave it. Things you do, do make a difference. I know that last bit from Wayne will make you think that what happened in Vermont was some sort of sweet community story. And maybe it is. But it's hard to understand exactly what happened in this experiment. Some people I shared it with called it charity, though it wasn't need-based, so that doesn't fit. Sometimes I think about it like mutual aid, but then I sort of have to shake myself awake like it's a debt. It's not aid. It can be confusing. For what it's worth, Jess and Moira know that what they're doing is not reparations. They call it wealth redistribution. But the letter calls out reparations as something that should and needs to happen. 
what they're doing, it kind of stands in the very large gap created in the absence of reparations. And I wanted to ask folks who have thought longer about this idea if what happened in Vermont meant anything to the cause. Yeah, I, I won't get sidetracked. There are lots of piecemeal programs or initiatives out there, and there they are. That's Richard America, an economist who has spent the past 50 years working on the economic case for reparations. Or restitution, as I prefer. He's published a lot of work on the topic. Slavery and segregation and discrimination were mechanisms for, let's put it crudely, stealing money. Hmm. Uh, Racism is primarily about money. It's got lots of other dimensions, but fundamentally, uh, slavery was a business operation. Mm -hmm. And segregation and just about every form of discrimination, likewise, takes money by force, by fraud, by many kinds of manipulation and enriches whites as a class at the expense of blacks as a class. To Richard, a national problem deserves a national solution. And his solution is pretty obvious. Tax the rich and redistribute that income back to Black people. And yes, he's aware. It sounds harsh. It is a zero-sum game. We're not sugarcoating that or, or tap-dancing around that. Yes, we want the top 30% of the income distribution to be poorer than they would have been. Because they should not have had what they have in the first place. Now, Richard's idea is just one of many. I've heard others that wouldn't involve taxes at all. The money could come from the Federal Reserve. But he does not support direct payments. No personal checks or direct deposits in Richard America's plan. He prefers what he calls life-changing grants to do things like buy a house or go to college. Ultimately, what good is startup money to buy a house when the property values are still racialized. In other words, the kind of institutional racisms that existed before, that's not going to change with a payment. Reparations is an idea that's bigger than just numbers, math, or money. Robin D.G. Kelly, he gets that. He's a history professor at UCLA who studied lots of different Black liberation movements. And to Robin, what was happening in Vermont... It was kind of funny. To me, it sounds like performance art. I would call it in some ways a kind of um, an interesting uh, provocation uh, in the name of reparations. But also, it wasn't enough. Gives people a laugh. And it puts some money in some Black people's pockets, which is good. I'm not against that at all. Um, but But if we stop there, then what will happen is that once every white person pays something, they're going to say, shut up, you can't talk anymore. Reparations should not be about guilt. It should be about justice. And that's different. Justice is not guilt. Guilt can motivate, but it doesn't repair. Justice does that. What Robin wants is something bigger. I've always thought about reparations in terms of of movement, in terms of Mm -hmm. building movements to create a new kind of society. A new kind of society. It 
it feels like such a big vision, you know? Yeah, but what, what good is vision without a big one? That was a ride. And I really want to know what our listeners (laughs) think of all that, what they just heard. So listeners, tell us, let us know how you feel about what went down in Vermont. Do you think that was reparations? Would you participate in something like that? Send us all your thoughts and feelings. Don't edit. Just send. (laughs) (laughs) Inquiring minds want to know. Yes, that was a lot. But, you know, there was a lot more. Uh, in the full Invisibilia episode, which I should go holler at, Keith spoke to some folks about other reparations inspire programs, you know, happening across the country. She asked some people in Vermont what they're spending that good reparations money on. <laughs> I really want to know. Are they taking friends out to dinner? <laughs> this is really a priority of yours. <laughs> it really is. I just, just want to be treated to a, a really nice dinner with some champagne. That's all. Reparations so that we might all eat. That's our show. You know who I am. I'm Shireen Marisol Miraji. You are. I'm Gene Dumpy. And the Code Switch version of this episode was produced by our very own Summer Tamad and edited by Leah Danella. And we're going to turn it back over to Kia Miyaka Natis for the full Invisibilia credits. Invisibilia is produced by Andrew Mambo, Kia Miyaka Natis, Yoe Shaw, and Abby Wendell. Our senior editor for the season is Deborah George. Nicole Beamsterboer is our supervising senior producer. Our manager is Liana Simstrom. We had help on this episode from Derek Arthur, Sophia Charles, David Goodhertz, Carolyn McCusker, Justine Yan, and Liza Yeager. Additional editorial support came from C.C. Pascal. Fact-checking by Natalie Mead and Greta Pittenger. This episode was mastered by our technical director, Andy Huther. Special thanks to Ramtin Arablui, Julie Kane, Jean Denby, Emmanuel Dochi, Jerry Holmes, Chioki Ianson, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, Devin Mays, Shereen Marisol Miraji, Micah Ratner, Luis Treas, and Walter Ray Watson. Additional thanks to Mitra Arthur, Hamza Butler, Miko Butte, Nikki Birch, and Natasha Desjardins, who lent their voices to this story. There are Black people in Vermont, and I spoke to a lot of them. There are too many to name, but if you're listening, thank you for taking the time to share your stories with me. And a big shout-out to Candace Taylor, Keona Bias-Heath, and Megan Cronkite. Our big bosses are Neil Carruth and Steve Nelson. Our senior vice president of programming is Anya Grunman. Music for this episode provided by Connor Lafitte, William Cashin, Arts the Beat Doctor, Selixis, Connor Moore, Firefly, and Physical Fitness. Theme music and more original tunes by Infinity Knives. To see an original illustration for this episode by Chair Wang, visit npr.org slash invisibilia. A special thanks to our funder, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, for helping to support this podcast. A few years ago, a website popped up in Stockton, California, and conspiracy theories started ramping way up. And it's being funded by conservative movement underneath the table. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, people really believe this. What happens when the local news outlet isn't fact-checking conspiracy theories? Maybe encouraging them. Listen now from NPR's Invisibilia podcast. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> 
stories that change the way you think about your life. How how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On It's Been a Minute, we're keeping you in the know when it comes to culture. I break down the latest trends and the forces behind them and introduce you to the creatives who think deeply about how we live today. Come for some good old cultural analysis and have a few laughs with me. Listen to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR.